0: I'm a political analyst and columnist, Danielle Moody.
1: And I'm writer with Jahat Ali. And we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy Democracy-ish. Ish
0: absolutely very excited to speak with the host of the mary trump show mary trump this is the republican party there's there aren't different wings of it anymore the entirety of the republican party is a white supremacist fascist party brian tyler cohen people are focused on the attacks on democracy they understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights we discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave the world some mixed messages at last week's NATO summit. First, he criticized NATO countries for not laying out a clear path for Ukraine's membership. He called the lack of such a move absurd. The next day, perhaps after some Western officials took issue with his tone, he was heard praising NATO for all of its support. And then, when he reached home, he was at pains to explain to a domestic audience his visit wasn't in vain. Zelensky has arguably the most difficult job in the world, and it's not hard to see in his statements last week a microcosm of the current state of the war. Obviously, Ukraine has done far better than anyone expected 18 months ago. But Kiev's ongoing counteroffensive hasn't significantly moved the needle, at least not as much as supporters hoped. And that's despite the fact that the recent Wagner rebellion highlighted real weaknesses and dissent in Putin's regime. It's a good time to try and explore where things stand in the war in Ukraine. And I turn to a popular FP Live guest for that, Andrea Kendall-Taylor. She's a senior fellow and the director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for New American Security. She previously served in the CIA for eight years and in government as a Russia expert. She's also the co-host of the podcast Brussels Sprout. And as you'll hear ahead, she thinks Putin has actually handled the fallout from the Wagner Rebellion quite well, but she thinks Kiev will soon ramp up its counteroffensive. There's a lot to listen there. As always, FP subscribers get to send in questions that frame these discussions. And soon, I should say, you'll be able to ask me questions too. I'm going to do an Ask Me Anything episode later this summer. Send in your questions about me, the show, foreign policy, world affairs, by emailing us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. Anything you want to ask, I'll try and answer or speak to an expert for answers. Once again, that's podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. For now, let's dive in. Andrea, welcome back to FP
2: Live. It's great to be back, Ravi.
1: So let me just begin with the news this week about the attack on the Kerch Strait Bridge. Russia claims Ukraine is responsible. Kiev hasn't confirmed that. This is the second time the bridge has been attacked in a major way in a year. Why is it important?
2: Well, as you said, this is the second time the bridge has attacked. And each time, I think the logic has been twofold. First, uh, it does have some tactical significance in that that bridge is a really important supply line for Russian fighters uh, who are fighting from Crimea. And we know that that has really been um, a bastion that the Russians have been able to use in order to execute a lot of the attacks into Ukraine, and so disrupting that supply line is part of what we're seeing the Ukrainians do at this particular time. They're trying to soften Russia's front lines, disrupt those supply lines uh, in order to create the conditions most conducive to their counteroffensive. So it does have some tactical significance in disrupting that important supply line But I think um, disproportionately, it's really symbolic. This bridge is something that is personally important to President Putin. He was present at the bridge's opening. And so being able to attack that bridge, I think, really hits at Russian morale. uh, The morale of the military that we know is probably strained, particularly in the wake of the Wagner uh, mutiny. And so I think it's, it's those two things. The the importance of the supply line is a little bit debated in the Russia community, which is interesting. Um, Some people will note that, you know, Russia has been able to sustain its fighters in Crimea long before that Kerch Bridge was ever built. And so it does have alternate routes using waterways and other things. So there's some, a little bit of debate in terms of how significant it is tactically and how disruptive it will be. But I don't think anyone would question the importance of that symbolic piece of that.
1: So let's look at the counteroffensive more broadly now. It's, you know, been going on for several weeks. Um, How would you assess its progress so far?
2: I think it's been slow. And I think Ukrainian officials have recognized that themselves. Um, As you said, we're more than a month into this. And my sense is that the Ukrainians themselves feel that they're much further behind where they would have wanted to be at this point in the counteroffensive. They still seem to be very focused on trying to weaken those Russian front lines again going after supply lines, uh, arms depots and other things kind of doing the softening um, that needs to take place before they're able to identify the vulnerability in the front line that they would look to very quickly break through and take advantage of. There was some reporting in the Wall Street Journal of Ukrainian officials themselves saying that they're okay um, and they've accepted the fact that things are progressing more slowly, but that they need to do this work upfront before they can make the significant progress that they hope is still coming. We even hear from U.S. officials that, you know, Ukraine hasn't fully deployed its full force in uh, the counteroffensive. So my sense is that there's still more that is likely to come, um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. But I do think it has been slower than the Ukrainians themselves would have hoped. Um, And so it has been very incumbent on them, I think, to appropriately shape expectations so that... um, that, that it isn't perceived as a failure yet. I think we always knew, we should say, we always knew that this offensive would look much more like Kherson, which is a slow, deliberate kind of effort to expel Russian forces from Ukrainian territory. It was going to look more like that than what we saw in Kharkiv, where we did see those very rapid breakthroughs uh, last fall. we knew So we knew it was gonna be slow, um, but even then I think it's been delivered a, a bit less than, than what many had expected at this point.
1: Andrea, you know, I've been struck by recent reporting that showed the sheer number of mines that seem to have been planted all along territory that was captured by Russia um and so there are all these demining experts on the Ukrainian side who are painstakingly trying to sort of remove these mines for every little bit that their forces are trying to advance how unusual is this and how much of an impediment um is it proving to be um for Ukraine's military
2: well i think it's a significant impediment and i think that's what we knew i mean we we have known for a while now that russia has focused shifted its focus from more offensive operations, right, that they were really focused on Bakhmut, but that they had shifted their focus from any sort of offensive operations to defensive operations and really entrenching these front lines, including all of these mining operations. So I think the mining effort is all part of that. These are extremely entrenched Russian lines, and the Ukrainians understood that it was going to be difficult, it's part of the conversation that they've had with their Western backers. The United States and others are giving demining equipment. Although uh, I think we should highlight that early on in the Ukraine's offensive, I believe that something like 50% of that demining equipment was taken out by Russian forces. And so that was a major setback in that sense. But that is where Russia's focus is at this moment. It is not on taking any new territory. They are uh, significantly focused on reinforcing those front lines, including through, through all those mines. So it is an extremely difficult operation um, that the Ukrainians are engaging in.
1: You know, in as much as this counteroffensive has been a little bit slow, how much of that could be attributed to hesitancy on the West part to give Ukraine the weapons it's asking for. And also the lag time. I mean, it strikes me that at summits like NATO, we hear about so much more going to Ukraine. But then it obviously takes a while to go from diplomacy to changes on the battleground.
2: I mean, again, so I think what you hear from US officials is that they're looking to provide Ukraine with what it needs for this point of their offensive. And I think that there are significant efforts to be to equip Ukraine with what they need. And obviously, we've seen that needle move markedly over the course of this war to providing increasingly advanced weapon systems, obviously with the Leopard tanks and now increasingly long range ammunitions from the UK and France and other allies. So I think there is a concerted effort to try to get the equipment that Ukraine needs into Ukrainian hands, it's obviously a difficult proposition. And so it has been slower than I think many would have hoped. And there are still things like the attackums, the longer range munitions that the United States has not yet been willing to give. We should talk maybe for a second about the cluster munitions, though. I mean, again, the United States is really working very hard to give Ukraine what it needs. And now we had this recent announcement that we would be providing cluster munitions, which has been a bit divisive within the alliance, in large part because of the human rights kind of aspect of it. But the United States is also struggling, I think, to keep pace, particularly on the munitions front and getting Ukraine what it needs as quickly. And so I think that was the impetus behind the decision on the cluster munitions is because we didn't have anything else really to give. Like that is what we had available to give. And so there was a lot of urgency um, to get those to the Ukrainians in order to try to aid their their offensive. So yes, of course, there's some frustration that they're not getting enough and they're not getting it fast enough. Um, But I do think there's a concerted effort to to continue to work with Ukraine so that they do have what they need.
1: And I think Biden admitted as much last week uh, when he was in Europe that this is what they had and this is what they could give. Just very quickly, since we're discussing cluster munitions, how do you think about the debate of the morality uh, over them? When I asked uh, Anders Forrasmussen, Rasmussen, uh, the former Secretary General of NATO, about it last week, I thought he said it best when he said, I don't like them. Um, and then he went on to explain why they might be necessary. What's your take?
2: I don't think anyone is out there um, fully in support of sending cluster munitions. No one is in that boat, but I think it's just the reality of where we are in the conflict. We keep coming back to this point of the war where it's clear that this is an artillery battle, and if we don't have enough artillery to provide to the Ukrainians, it the cluster munitions is what we have. At this moment when it's needed so again, I think that I think he said it perfectly I don't think anyone is out there singing the praises of cluster munitions, but it is the reality of the conflict the Ukrainians themselves are asking for it. And it's what they need to liberate their territory, all sorts of horrific things are happening to Ukrainians that are in occupied Russian territory. And so if th- that is, in my mind, a little bit of the trade-off, is it obviously comes with very significant downsides for human rights considerations. But there are horrible human rights abuses that are taking place behind Russian lines. And so if this is what it takes in order for Ukraine to be able to liberate more of that territory, then so be it. And then hopefully the United States and its allies will work uh, concertedly with Ukraine, you know, on the demining and other activities in order to try to mitigate the impact later.
1: Yeah, and to be clear, both Ukraine and Russia have been using cluster munitions anyway. So I want to get to the recent Wagner rebellion and then also the broader issues with Russia's military and with Putin himself. So for our viewers who haven't followed this blow by blow, on June 23rd, Wagner mercenary forces led by Evgeny Prigozhin took control of a city called Rostov-on-Don. They then took control of the southern military district and then marched towards Moscow. All of this played out almost live on international TV, and it followed weeks of tensions between Prigozhin and Russia's defense minister and army chief, with the Wagner chief blaming them for essentially incompetence. And then all of a sudden the game of chicken ended. Prigozhin seemed to blink after a phone call from Belarusian leader Lukashenko, and then he turned around. Andrea, what's the latest you can tell us about where Wagner is and where his forces might be? There have been some reports uh, with satellite imagery of Wagner forces assembling in Belarus.
2: Yeah, I think we should acknowledge up front that there's still a lot of Murkiness around this and a lot that we still don't know. And I think um, events are likely to change rapidly. So given where we are now, yes, I've seen the same reports that suggest that Prigozhin and many of his Wagner forces are finally arriving in Belarus, Um, but it's very difficult to know that for certain. I think the, the, the kind of the key update is where we are now in terms of the Wagner assets is that there's a concerted Kremlin effort to try to separate Yevgeny Prigozhin from Wagner, his fighters and his other considerable assets. So for example, you know we've seen that the Russian government has already canceled many of the contracts that they have with Concord, which is Progoshin's catering company. Um, we've seen Roskvardia, the kind of internet regulator, uh, shut down a lot of internet sites that are related. Um, there's uh, it's been reported that the Troll Factory, the internet research agency, which was responsible for a lot of the interference in the United States in 2016, there's reports that that has been shut down. So they are very painstakingly going through and trying to separate Wagner from those assets. But I do think we need to be clear that a lot of this is likely to be more of like a rebranding and a change in ownership rather than an end to a lot of these operations. Because what Wagner uh, and Prigozhin have done is provide a lot of valuable resources for the Russian state. It is in many ways an extension of the Russian state, whether it's uh, working in mines in Africa or obviously fielding this considerable and most effective force in Ukraine. And so... When this happened, I think Putin was a little bit between a rock and a hard place where there was obviously an imperative to crack down and put an end to this mutiny. But at the same time, I think they had to be very careful not to alienate the Wagner fighters who have been the most effective in Ukraine. And they needed, they still, especially given constraints on the Russian budget and other things, need these assets. And so I think that's what's what's happening now is that they're trying to carefully separate Prigozhin from some of these assets without losing the resources and the capacity that the Wagner fighters and other parts of Prigozhin's empire provide to the Russian state.
1: So Andrea, here's one thing I don't fully get, and I'm hoping you can shed light on. The Wagner group was clearly such an influential force uh, on the battlefield, but the Pentagon says the group is no longer participating in any significant capacity in support of combat operations in Ukraine. Um, So what's going on? How has Russia's military been able to step into places that Wagner uh, ostensibly sort of was was keeping hold of? And also just in terms of the battlefield dynamics, if Wagner is off the battleground right now, uh, why hasn't that shifted some of the sort of battlefield dynamics and allowed Kyiv to push further ahead?
2: Well, I think it's too soon to tell exactly the impact that the removal of the Wagner fighters is having on the battlefield. So prior to the mutiny, um, his Wagner forces were most heavily engaged in and around Bakhmut, right? That was the fight that played out, that painstaking battle over that city that played out over the course of many, many months. That's where Wagner was primarily focused. And I don't know like what percentage of their fighters were employed there, but I think it was a high, a high percentage. And so after they effectively seized Bakhmut, Prigozhin did uh, slowly take his fighters out of Bakhmut and allow the Russian military then to do the hard work of holding the city. And so it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen in and around Bakhmut. They're actually, in terms of Ukraine's uh, counteroffensive, I think the most gains that they're beginning to have are actually around Bakhmut. And my understanding of the latest on the battlefield is that they've gained some strategic advantage there in terms of taking higher ground, that they're working on breaking up the ground lines of communication of the Russian military that is there and moving towards what could be an encirclement of Russian forces there. So it very well may be that now that they've withdrawn Wagner that it's going to be more difficult for Russia to continue to hold Bakhmut and I think that then would have real impact you know in terms of the the shape of the the front line and of the of the battlefield dynamics. But I think that the other key question that I have and that I don't have an answer to is presumably those Wagner forces would have been redeployed elsewhere where they were needed in the course of Ukraine's counteroffensive. And so that is a real question to me is the availability now of those fighters. So we know that the Russian state, Putin himself, has said that those Wagner fighters could join uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense and sign contracts with the Russian MOD. But I think there's just a lot of questions about how they might be incorporated into the Russian military, um, you know, whether or not they would be willing to follow the kind of hierarchy and chain of command. There's obviously, or I don't know, obviously, but there is presumably could be some bad blood between the Russian military, uh, the Ministry of Defense and those Wagner fighters. So again, I that's a long way of saying I think it's a really open question about the future of the Wagner forces and whether or not they will be folded into the Russian military or whether or not they will kind of reconvene in Belarus, we know that um, uh, mm-hmm. Belarusian President Lukashenko has given them um, a training base there. So it could be that they reconvene and reform there, and could be deployed once again, potentially under different leadership. I think that's what's important here. Is it seems to me again separating Prigozhin from the capacity that Wagner brings. Those forces could reform in Belarus and be redeployed in Ukraine, but under different leadership that's clearly more loyal and compliant with the Kremlin.
1: And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. So sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. So the flip side to all of this is what the Wagner Rebellion has revealed in terms of Putin's standing, his relationship with his generals, uh, and the fate uh, of Putin's uh, government. So let me just run through some of the things we've discovered over the last few weeks. So we haven't seen General Surovikin since June 23rd. This is General Armageddon. As he's known, there were reports that he knew about the Wagner mutiny in advance. Another general, Popov, uh, stepped down after accusing Moscow of treachery. A lieutenant general, Sokov, was killed in a missile strike last week. One other was gunned down in mysterious circumstances. It all just feels like these are, you know, hit after hit um, on senior levels of Putin's military apparatus. When you add it all up, Andrea, what's the broader sort of tapestry that you're looking at?
2: Well, I would separate the Russian military from the domestic stability dynamics inside Russia, and as you said, Popov, who has had uh, leveled these criticisms, and the generals being taken out on the battlefield. To me, that is all very representative of the state of Russian military morale, um, where the heads of Russian fighters are. But that has been a concern for a very long time, right? Basically from the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there have been a lot of concerns. um, Well, I shouldn't say concerns, but many people have highlighted the state of the morale of the Russian military and suggested that that might be a key vulnerability that would impede them in their operations in Ukraine. Um, But despite that morale, we, you know, they're continuing to be able to hold the front lines and it hasn't been um, entirely detrimental yet to the Russian military. So, again, I think it's an an open question um, in terms of where the Russian military is and the impact that Wagner and these other incidents are having on morale. So that remains an open question. But in terms of like, what does this Wagner, what does the mutiny mean in terms of Putin's stability? That's a very different question. And again, I think there, I know that many people have had the conclusion that this has weakened Putin. And I think I would agree with that in part. Um, I think that this mutiny has weakened Putin potentially over the long term, but for the time being, I think he's done a very good job at quelling any of the threats. So we've seen basically Putin go on the offensive, which is something we haven't seen from him for a very long time. So in the wake of this mutiny, Putin has been out using uh, the Russian state media to discredit Prigozhin, to portray him as a criminal Uh, and other things. And I think that's a narrative that the Russian people have largely bought into, that they've been able, you know, bringing up his criminal past, that he's this bad egg. And I think, so in terms from a a public opinion perspective, I think he's dampened um, any sort of threat or change in perceptions of Putin's legitimacy. He's also, I, I think it was remarkable that we saw Putin going out just days after the mutiny in the caucuses, shaking hands, kissing babies. So again, I think he was a, a very attuned to the possibility that the that the mutiny could weaken his legitimacy. And so he's gone on the offensive, both to discredit Prigozhin, to uh, remind people that he is popular, and he's kind of held up his security services. He convened a whole group of the National Guard and the FSB and brought them all together and has held up the security services as kind of the defenders of the state. And reminding people again, I think that the security services are united in support for Putin. So in the near term, I think he has very much uh, managed to put the threat down. But the question becomes over the longer term. And in that sense, I think the mutiny has changed, potentially changed people's perceptions inside Russia about what is possible. And so the fact that he got within 120 miles of the Kremlin with very little resistance, the fact that there weren't people out on the streets in support of Putin, you know, I'm always reminded of the aborted or the failed coup in Turkey, you know, most recently. And when that happened, there were throngs of people out on the street in support of Erdogan. You saw nothing like that inside Russia. So I think in the near term, it seems like there's no eminent threat to Putin. But the big question comes over the longer term, whether this has changed people's perceptions about what's possible.
1: You know, I was going to ask you how the rebellion was viewed by average Russians. And I think you've answered some of that. But let me ask you a a variation of that question. What about the Russian elite, Uh, the ones who have gained and profited from Putin being in power for so long, the ones who also in some senses support Putin in so many different ways? How are the elites looking at all of this?
2: I think there's a lot of debate about that question, and I think in my uh, understanding, or the way that I interpret these events, is that the elite, um, they signed a deal with Putin, like that they all owe their positions, their wealth, their fortune, um, their positions within society to Putin and because their fates are so intertwined with his my sense is that they are they are still kind of standing behind putin because they very much fear a tumultuous and chaotic transition just imagine you know if prigozhin had seized power and obviously that wasn't in the cards but then that could have threatened most of their financial interests and others within the system and so i think what the elite will prefer is a much more managed transition, um, someone who Putin anoints and that who can guarantee the same contract will be upheld. And actually in a lot of the work that I've done with a colleague of mine, Erica Frantz, we've looked at how political transition tends to happen in authoritarian systems with these longtime leaders. And what we find in our research is that, well, death in office is the most likely. But then a consensus candidate, someone who the elite support, uh, immediately replaces that person. Hmm. Um, but in the cases where you have a more irregular transition, it's almost never at the hands of the elite. And again, it comes back to this idea that the elite's fate are intimately twined to that of Putin. And so they have no real reason to rock the boat and jeopardize or upset the system through which they all benefit. And instead, what is more common when a leader doesn't die in office is that you've got some sort of bottom-up opposition to a leader. It's either mass protests or some sort of civil war insurgency-like scenario, which is exactly what I think we saw a peek into with the progosian mutiny. A lot of that stems from the fact that, again, so it's the elite view their fates as tied to that of the leader. There's also a lack of institutions inside Mm -hmm. Russia, which makes changing the system from within virtually impossible. It also makes it really difficult for the elite to coordinate with one another if they wanted to remove Putin. And, And so instead, what you tend to see in these regimes is that when discontent piles up, it has nowhere to be channeled through. And so it spills over into these kind of bottom up outside the system challenges. And again, I think in, in that sense, you know, the Prigozhin mutiny in and of itself wasn't surprising. And it's something actually that my, I myself had written about as a potential risk to the Putin regime. So the fact of the mutiny wasn't surprising, but I certainly the timing was, and no one really anticipated that it came when it did.
1: So uh, just given that, I remember uh, before the Wagner Rebellion, you, I think, told the New Yorker that you would put the chances of regime change in Russia over the next two years at about 10%. Do you still feel the same way or has that changed since the rebellion?
2: I think I, I, I moved up a little bit in terms of like the potential risks to the regime, and again, I don't think that any threat is imminent. But over the longer term, I do think that this does change people's perceptions about what is possible in Russia. And I think, you know, we it, predicting the timing of regime change in autocracy like Ru- Putin's Russia is ex- exceptionally difficult. But I'm looking ahead to elections next year there's going to be all sorts of budget constraints. There's going to be um, a extreme tension between wanting to increase social spending, for example, mm-hmm. to try to uh, increase support for the regime ahead of those elections with the need for increased military spending. So there are potential flashpoints on the horizon. And with this mutiny, I think it demonstrated that there's a lot of apathy within the system, right? That there, that, again, like Progojin got to within 120 miles of Moscow with very little opposition. There had to have been at least some buy-in from parts of the border guards and some of their military. So I think it suggests to people that things are possible and it will raise questions about whether or not the system, the regime, would be willing to crack down in a concerted effort. Um, and so, again, so I, I guess I the, the the short answer to my long explanation is I think my baseline odds have gone up a little bit um, after the mutiny than from before.
1: Got it. That's good to know. We are getting tons of subscriber questions from around the world, so let me take a couple of them. Uh, J C says, "I heard recently that Putin is actually more like a figurehead right now. He's tired, not willing to deal with big issues adequately." What's your view? Do you buy that? And I, I want to add on one more from uh, our subscriber, Marco, who says, who else could challenge Putin?
2: So maybe I'll start with that second question, um, because I think that's the at the heart of Putin's stability. Um, I think the most important factor that is um, providing stability within the system is the fact that there is no alternative to Putin. And that is obviously intentional. So he has gone to great efforts to marginalize people who are competent, to create rival factions that then compete with one another. I think it's virtually impossible for Russians to imagine a Russia under somebody else. And that has all, again, it's very intentional. And so the fact that there isn't a clear, viable alternative to Putin, I think, is the single most important factor that is propping up his regime. Um, of course, if he were to die tomorrow, there's all sorts of potential contenders. You could think of Sobyanin, or um, there, you know, there, there's a whole group uh, within that whole elite where I think what would happen is they they would basically have to get together uh, and come up with a consensus candidate who they all believed could continue the regime, such that they all continued to benefit. Shustin, who's sitting in the prime minister, I think is a, an especially um, attractive contender in part because he's viewed as such a technocrat. I think mm. the key, when you look at what happens in other long-time authoritarian regimes, it tends to be people who appear a little bit weaker, potentially more technocratic because then all of the elite believe that they can control that person rather than picking someone from an extreme faction or who's really represented from one part of the system or the other, which would really kind of de- destabilize things. So I think, you know, I'm looking a lot at who are the people, not Demi- not Medvedev or others who have been so vocal in this conflict, but who have managed really to keep their heads down and not get involved in the business of this war. To me, those seem like the most likely contenders uh, in a post-Putin Russia, but for the time being, no one would dare pop their head up as a viable alternative because I think you would imagine that they would be dealt with very quickly. In terms of like Putin's Um, if he's a kind of just a figurehead and gotten tired, I guess I I, I hear that a lot. um, And I, I think I see it differently, that this just feels like a long time established authoritarian regime, like the, you know, he's been there for 23 years. And there's good political science literature that talks about, you know, when a leader has been there that long, they've basically become an established autocracy where everyone generally understands their role in the system, everyone generally understands the unspoken rules. And yes, they can change and they go through periods where they do, but everyone generally understands how things work. And so Putin doesn't have to have it. He's He, I, he is a little bit on cruise control, but that is kind of a function and what is common in these longtime authoritarian systems.
1: So I know you watched last week's NATO summit closely. This was in Vilnius, Lithuania, and it was widely reported Ukraine didn't get the pathway to membership that it wanted, um, but it did get other things in terms of economic aid, uh, promises for more military aid. What did you make of the more tangible things that Ukraine did receive? And what impact do you think that might have uh, on the ongoing conflict?
2: Well, I got. I think the way I, I kind of echo what you're saying, Robbie, is that it was the summit was bittersweet. Um, and I think it was a little bit bitter because of the things that Ukraine did not get. And that was quite clearly, um, they did not receive uh, a clear invitation to join the alliance with any kind of clear timeline for their entry into NATO. And in that sense, I think it was very much a missed opportunity for Ukraine but there is, as you said, a lot to be positive about. So obviously, Sweden, Turkey has joined, uh, dropped its opposition to join the alliance, um, paving the way for Sweden to join. We saw NATO reaffirm the 2% and allies talking about that as a floor rather than a ceiling. NATO unveiled its regional defense plans. Um, and then to get to your point, though, Ravi, I think what was really significant was the G7 agreement, actually, that came on the margins of the summit in which all of the G7 countries and others have now signed on um, to make bilateral pledges of long-term sustained military support for Ukraine. And I think that's where a lot of the energy has been within the alliance with the United States and its allies and partners is moving towards what people are calling this Israel model, which is that we will equip over the long term with these very Um, credible commitments to do it over the long term, and that helps Ukraine from a defense planning perspective. It helps Ukraine become more interoperable with NATO, and as you said in your introduction, I think that was what Zelensky went home and and was able to highlight for his Ukrainian domestic audience. Yes, they fell short on the invitation uh, and the clear pledge that Ukraine would join NATO, Um, But what they did get was a lot of bilateral security agreements that starts to create a framework that will strengthen Ukraine's defenses over the long term. I I think there there still is, even though um, the communique didn't go as far as many people would have hoped, and obviously Zelensky made his displeasure with the language that they agreed on known to all, But I think the way I saw it is, I think we, well, A, we understand that the United States is very isolated within the alliance. To me, this really demonstrated that the alliance, that the ground has shifted and that it's no longer a question of if Ukraine will get NATO membership, it's much more a question of when. So to me, the ground has shifted and the language at Vilnius and the U.S. role in that represented this Incremental approach that the US administration has favored all along right, so we know that the United States doesn't want to move quickly on anything, including the provision of military aid. um, Because they fear a Kremlin backlash and so to me, this was another example of Washington boiling the Kremlin frog, so to speak, that it was an incremental step towards NATO membership, and I think then now. All eyes are focused on how we can move that forward in the next year, in the build or in the run up to the Washington summit next year.
1: Throughout this war, there's been the undercurrent threat of nuclear war. And I feel like there's also been a constant flux in how policymakers weigh the threat and the likelihood of Putin resorting to nuclear weapons in some form at some point. How do you see the threat now, Um, given the latest we've been discussing with the summit, with the current state of the counteroffensive? And also, I should add, there's a worry among policymakers that even if Ukraine were to sort of take significant parts of territory that the Russians currently occupy in sort of departing that territory, Um, There's always the fear that Russia could, you know, leave behind a tactical nuclear device of some sort just to create more mischief and mayhem. How do you see that threat?
2: I think in my understanding, the threat has kind of been constant throughout the conflict. And I don't know that it's a question of policymakers changing the way that they're weighing the risk of nuclear threat so much as the way that it's portrayed in the media. And I think the Biden administration has been very clear that the risk of nuclear uh, Russia using a nuclear weapon is low, but it's something that we can never uh, disregard. Um, and that threat then has been constant throughout this conflict. And it has been, I think, an important dynamic that has shaped the way that the Biden administration has engaged in that it, is, it explains in large part why we've seen the incrementalism. They've taken these small steps in large part because they don't want to risk provoking a significant Kremlin response, which could include the use of a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. So, you know, I don't think that the risk has really fluctuated all that much over the life of the conflict. I think it's been pretty much a steady given. And I think that the scenario in which people worry about the risk of a nuclear weapon is in the scenario where Putin himself feels at risk. If Russia is expelled from large swaths of Ukrainian territory such that Putin feels that that would jeopardize his hold on power at home, that's the scenario that I worry most about the potential use of a nuclear weapon. Now, we also know that the Ukrainians are comfortable with that, right? I mean, they've been extremely vocal in saying that if Russia uses a nuclear weapon, it it doesn't, it's not going to change how they approach the conflict. It just raises the costs that they're going to have to pay to liberate their territory. So they've been very upfront that they are not going to be deterred by the potential use of a nuclear weapon. That may, in fact, be one area where there's some daylight between the Biden administration and the Ukrainians themselves. But um. So I, I, yeah, I, I don't think, certainly if we start to see the Ukrainians making very significant gains on the battlefield, and we see the Russian public, military and elite starting to react to that such that Putin feels more uncertain about his own standing, I think that's the scenario where I worry about most. But again, the Ukrainians have said they're not deterred by that.
1: Andrea Kendall-Taylor, it is always a pleasure to pick your brain. Thanks for giving us time.
2: Thanks for having me, Robbie.
1: And that was Andrea Kendall Taylor from CNAS, the Center for New American Security. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website. That's foreignpolicy.com slash live. Subscribers get to submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount to that and all the other good stuff on our website. And you can share your questions with us for the AMA I mentioned earlier. Email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. That is podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. It's for an episode that will air later this summer, and I will answer your questions. That's it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time.
0: Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant.
1: The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk.
0: The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries, and we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy, and that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift.
1: You want to make it tasteful, you want to make it thoughtful, you thought about the other individual, you thought about what their likes and dislikes are.
0: Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario
2: and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the
0: time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.